everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Thank you again for being here. Uh, again, it's a privilege of mine to be with you guys every morning and be able to um, share, open up God's word with you and um, kind of continue specifically this week our series in the book of Acts. Again, going through this now for a few weeks together. Um, we're past the halfway mark now and kind of approaching the tail end of it, but it's really enjoyable. Um, read, right? Getting a read uh, through the history of the early church. If you uh, like reading about history, this is a, a really cool narrative that we get to read and see in Scripture. And so it's been awesome to see together what God's done in the history of the early churches. The gospel multiplied, right, from Jerusalem where it all began and how it's gotten to where we are today, right? Just as Jesus said that it would go into the rest of the world, our presence here this morning is a testimony of that success, right, and how that did happen and how that came to fruition. This is why we're together. This is why we um, celebrate um, Jesus, why we celebrate the gospel, and the gospel being really the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith, something we're going to be looking at today and, and delving into this morning. Uh, before we get into that, just want to quickly recap where we were at last week. Uh, we talked about chapter 13, and we looked specifically at these two men who were going into their first missionary journey together. We looked at Paul, and we looked at Barnabas, right? And we looked at this church in general, how they were open-handed, generous, and um, uh, attentive to God's word. But specifically as we looked at these leaders in that church at that time, we got to see the relational dynamics that take place uh, because of the gospel. Right? We see two guys, two people who were totally opposites from each other, who... Um, before they came together and went on this missionary journey would have been, uh, I guess you could consider maybe enemies, right? Two people on opposite ends of the spectrum. A guy that was sold out for Jesus, um, kind of pushing forth the gospel, giving generously, donating to others and meeting their needs. While on the other hand, you had Paul who was killing people just like that. And somehow they come together, and now these people from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, uh, different historical um, circumstances, right? Their pre-existing circumstances before this moment, right? Which would normally disqualify or prevent people from working together, from getting along, right? When you have this kind of animosity or bitterness in your day-to-day, -day, when you see people that uh, have these um, strifes with one another. You would never expect these two people to come together, but they did, and they went out and, and sacrificed their lives together, not because uh, they're better than anyone else, but only because of the gospel, because the gospel reconciles people, has the ability to do something that nothing else can the gospel helps us forgive, to put aside and lay aside our bitterness, to lay aside our pride, lay aside our hurt, pain, egos, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're going through, anger, malice, whatever. 
The gospel allows us to lay that aside because of what Jesus has done for us. It changes things. It changes relationships. It makes old things new like, again, nothing else can. And again, the only reason this is accomplished is because of this new body, this new people, right? Rather than driving a wedge between people, whenever there's a difference, a lot of the times the culture will kind of capitalize on that difference, right? Seek to separate people. Whenever you get a, a whiff of differences, all of a sudden you're now in these niches and these groups and you're pulled apart and, and you identify with that. So you, you're, you're at odds with everyone else. Your way is the right way and this and that. But anyways, what the gospel does is kind of makes way with all of that. It humbles us. It makes us prioritize the other individual because we have been loved and so we love others in that same way and the gospel, again, it reconciles people. This is the only reason we see these two men being able to go out and do what they did. And again, that same power that the gospel has, it's available to us today. It can do that and it can achieve that in your lives. Because of the gospel, you, you don't have to be um, a slave to anger, to, to hate um, uh, to pain, that stuff can be laid aside. It's been overcome by Jesus. And so this is what we talked about. This is what we kind of um, made our uh, overarching uh, theme for the morning and, and for our session, for our time together. This morning, building off of that, right, we see that these men go on and they do a few great things. I want to talk about what the gospel is, and we kind of get into that here with chapter 15, where we'll be this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can start to make your way on over there, but uh, clarifying a few things, right? Talk about how um, here in this section, the Bible is clarified, or the gospel better is clarified, but then there are also implications that come along with the gospel that are also highlighted here in this passage. Now, let me ask you this morning, what is the gospel? Can somebody please tell me what the gospel of Jesus is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have anything to add to that? Excuse me? The Gospels, the Gospel of Jesus, anybody else? You can't what? Can't earn. The Gospel is crucial for us to understand, right? Um, the narrative, as Molly said, um, is important for us to understand. If we don't have that right, everything else kind of falls apart. The gospel is that we were separated from God because of our sin. From the beginning of time, since the fall of man, we have been separated from God, and the wages of sin is what? Death. And yet God, because he so loved us, he, he made a way for us to be reconciled with him. So it's not just about us spending an eternity with heaven, in heaven with God, but it is so that we may have a relationship with him. 
Yes, in the life to come, but also here in the now. We are forgiven through Jesus, not by anything that we can do, right? Nothing that we can earn. We can read about it in the Gospels. The Gospel is that Jesus came to live the life that we could never, died for our sins. It's what held him there on the cross. And on the third day, after being dead, he rose again from the grave. And he is alive today and reigning. And if we believe that, that he died for our sins, then we too can be saved. That's the gospel. Right? The gospel, I guess, in and of itself is a, 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 an interesting word because a lot of the times we just say the gospel but don't clarify the gospel of Jesus. The gospel, right, when we talk about gospel, gospel is just good news. Right? We kind of just kind of just or tag along with it that it is the gospel of Jesus when we say it or infer the gospel because that's just what we associate it with. But naturally, in that context, when you would hear the gospel, right, there, there wasn't just the message of Jesus. It could have been any good news, right, that pertained to you. And so here we find the gospel of Jesus. Um, and the gospel of Jesus, what it does is it looks back at the Old Testament, it looks at the fall of man, the beginning of time, and sees how God had put in place a reconciliation plan for us to be redeemed through his son, right? He promises a coming Messiah, and Jesus, when we read about him in the gospel, he is the fulfillment of that promise. Um, I'm going to put on my glasses because this is terrible. Um, <laughs> but... The gospel is not us just trying to be good, right? The gospel, when we talk about being saved, it's not about trying to be good people. It's not a list of rules. It's not, hey, I'm a Christian because I don't do drugs. I'm a Christian because I don't um, do whatever. I don't go to parties or I um, don't swear. That's not what makes you a Christian. You're, you're not a Christian because you refrain from doing all that premarital funky business, that's not what makes you a Christian. It's not this set of rules, this list of things, right? The gospel is not a moralistic thing, but the gospel is, in fact, all about Jesus. It's not about trying to be good. It's not about, um, you know, trying um, to look like Jesus um, in appearance, it's not about modeling him. Obviously, that comes along with it, right? Right? But if all you see that uh, the gospel has is a, a list of do's and don'ts, then you, you've totally missed what the gospel is. And maybe the gospel, maybe Christianity doesn't sound appealing to you because that's all you thought about Christianity. You just thought it was a set of rules and it just was a, a list of do's and don'ts. And you're like, well, I'm not very good at that. Well, of course. The, the, the reality is we all stink at being good. Everybody here in this room is terrible at being good. And so if, naturally, if all you think the gospel is, oh, just being a good person, you're going to fail at it, and you're not going to want to continue in it because you're not good. None of us are good. We're all sinners. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? Even if you are the best at being good, somehow, at best, what you'll be is like the Pharisees that we read about in Scripture. People who are so, so hung up on how good they are that their pride comes through. 
They think that they're superior and above everybody else, and they're consumed by their ego. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's what he's done for you. It's what I just said moments ago, and that is the foundation for our lives. And if we don't get that right, everything else that rests on top of that is going to crumble, and it falls apart. You guys know how that's important, right? A foundation for whatever that you build. It must be sturdy and stable for everything else on top of it to stand. Let me ask you, does anybody here know what the tallest building in the world is? Anybody? JB, I'm going to get you a prize, JB. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Wow, JB. Rises. It rises. <laughs> It rises more than 2,700 feet. Now, that's about over half a mile tall. I know not everybody in here drives, but that's pretty long. You might have ran that for class, right? So running half a mile up into the sky, that's how high this thing is. And here's some details about you. I want to I get into this so we can get into our message really quick here. But before that, let me give you some information. On this building here, it has 160 floors. It is twice as tall as the Empire State Building in New York City. I don't know if you've ever been to New York. I grew up in that area, but it is two times the size of that. It is also uh, the building that contains the fastest elevator of all time. It goes 40 miles an hour. <laughs> I don't know if they have like seat belts in that elevator. I don't know if there's like a Velcro wall that you like kind of stick yourself to or... Anyways, 40 miles an hour. It also has the highest outdoor observation deck, so it's the highest point, I guess, that you can go and observe stuff. That's on the 124th floor. And it also has the highest swimming pool, which is on the 76th floor of the building. Now, with all of that being said, this massive building, this massive um, uh, building that is in Dubai only stands because the secret is what's happening underground. What's taken place there actually before they even began is that these workers spent a year just digging underground and pouring a massive foundation there that supports this building. Now, I think it's actually close to 60,000 cubic yards of concrete. And that's why I have this. If you're wondering why I have this thing. Um, just for us to understand, because cubic yards is a little bit tricky for us to put into perspective. But that's around 12.2 million gallons of these of concrete that they poured and they used in order to lay that foundation. Now, how much does that weigh, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you, 110,000 tons. Again, not what we often use, so let me put that into perspective. In pounds, 242.5 million pounds. That is one and a half uh, Washington monuments of weight that is underground holding this thing up. The reason that this building is so safe is because of the foundation that exists. A solid foundation. Godly and righteous living, and, and follow with me here, 
right? Obeying what God's word says. That's important, right? Obedience matters, but what is of utmost importance is that we are anchored in the truth of the gospel. That is our foundation. Not your obedience, because you will fail. What is at the anchor of that, what is at the bottom, holding that all up, is the gospel. And I know you all have a bunch of different questions, right? We all have different questions about different things that we read in the Bible. And they're important, right? You know, you grew up with them. You might still have them. I, I grew up with several. I grew up always thinking, is it true that every time I see lightning or hear thunder, it's God rolling a, a strike? Um, for some reason, I always thought that to be the case. Or somebody joked around with me, and I believed it until, you know, I actually had common sense. But, um, you know, when Jesus walked on water, did he practice that beforehand? Right? Or did he just walk on water for the first time and he just did it? Or was he like out there practicing and just waiting for the right time to use it? I don't know. Um, another one, one that I probably still think of this day and I ask that plagues me and I would love a solid answer for it is why in the world did God create mosquitoes? Right? No good reason for him, in my opinion. I can't think of one, haven't heard of one. But those are questions, right? They may be silly. Um, some of them might be important, like the mosquito one. But nonetheless, whatever the questions you have, as important as they may be, as much as you want to understand that, as much as you want to have your head around certain things, right? I do want to tell you, though, that it is most important for all of us to understand the gospel. You know, we can disagree on certain issues in life. There will be things that we disagree on, that you and I may not see eye to eye, and you and others, you can have your own personal convictions, right? You, you, you can make those decisions for yourself, but there should be no contention, and there will not be any contention when it comes to the gospel, because there is no mincing that. There is no opinion on that. The gospel is what it is should be no debate around that. And this is what starts to happen here. They address it because it has to be addressed. The gospel is not the only thing that we're going to talk about, but it is the center of everything. Matt Chandler has a quote, and he says this, everything is not about the gospel, but everything should lead to it. So right in the middle of this missionary journey, Right, Paul and Barnabas. Now, in chapter 13, looking back again, they're sent about 500 miles away. And as they go 500 miles there, they're stopping everywhere and sharing the gospel with everybody. When they get this 500-mile point, they turn back around and they start making their way back to Antioch, right? which is, again, modern-day Turkey. This is where the center of the church is. This is the hub of the church. They make their way back, and when they arrive, there is this disagreement, I guess, that has broken out. And that's where chapter 15 begins. Let me start reading it for us and get through this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Again, we've seen this time and time again. Right? Circumcision is a sign. It's symbolic to these people. The Jewish people hold on to this um, ritual because this is something that they look back to in a promise to Abraham, that God would bless their people. And so for them, this is something that they can do tangibly that, that remembers or helps them remember or affiliate them with the promises that were made to all 
of their descendants. They value this. And so now what they're doing is they have come, again, these Judaizers, uh, as Paul talks about in great lengths. We already went over Galatians here, and we see this time and time again, and this happens. They have come to this congregation in Antioch, which is, again, full of Gentile people, right? This is outside of Jerusalem at this point. So these people have not grown up with these customs, with these traditions, with these rituals. And so what they have come and they have done is, hey, you know, if you want to be one of us, if you want to be saved, you want to have a relationship with God, well, Yes, there's this, but you also have to do X, Y, and Z. It's like me showing up in a different culture and saying, hey, you want to be like us? Well, if you want to do it, you got to do it the right way. There's this that you have to do before you can actually do it. Um, they've shown up and they've kind of put forth these rituals that are necessary to be saved, so be it. If you want to be made right with God, this is the only way. Now, this was not a matter where there could be disagreement among believers. Um, with some believing you must be under the law and some believing it was not important, this was an issue that went to the core of Christianity and it had to be resolved. Again, the gospel is important. If we miss it, if we don't understand it, everything else will fall apart. And so with these controversies, with these debates coming up and these differences that arise, they have to address it because if they don't, everything else will again fall apart. And so they start to. In verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had a small uh, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent, to, sent on their way by the church, they passed both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees wrote up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Now, these laws, um, if you were to think of them in terms of moral laws, you know, you think of the Ten Commandments. Right? A lot of us are familiar with that um, list of, of, of commands there. Um, even if you're not a church, you might be familiar with it. You might have heard of it at least. But these are not just moral laws they're talking about. They're talking about ritual laws. They're talking about physical circumcision. They're talking about laws around purity. They're talking about laws around food. Things that they have to do and they have to keep doing in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with God. And so the argument here being made is that the Gentiles at the church were not saved. And that they had to do these things in order for them to be so. And of course, Paul, as we know, is totally against that, totally understands that that is not true, and this is where that discourse starts to take place in a thing called the Jerusalem Council. And verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider these matters. So again, they have come together. These people have come together because of these issues that have uh, risen up, and they have to clarify it, so they get everybody together, the apostles, which are the followers of Jesus, people that walk with Jesus, all the leaders, and they brought them to one place to discuss these things. And the basis of what they're talking about will be this. What must we do for salvation apart from salvation by grace through faith? There are a few questions. The main one being this, and it'll be on the screen. Is there anything that needs to be added to what Jesus has done? Essentially, do the Gentiles have to become Jewish, ritualistic Jews in order to be saved? And a question that kind of stems from that is this. If the Gentiles don't have to become ritualistic Jews, 
then how can there ever be fellowship with one another? So again, this is not about morality, right? The law of Moses itself. Paul always says that obeying the law is important. But these disagreements are over rituals. Like, can I still eat steak? Right? Can I still have bacon? Right? These people would say, no. This is against the rituals that we have. These are against our beliefs. If you want to be saved, you can't do those things either. And so they're talking about these things, disagreeing about them, of course, and this is what happens. Um, here are a few answers that are given, right? Some of the leaders respond, and this is what's said. First one is Peter that we're going to look at. He says this, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And they made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as they will. So again, he now is referencing Acts 10, which we talked about when he went to Cornelius, which is an Italian man, and the Lord gave him a vision, right? And he made it very clear that Gentiles, Jews, we are all the same in the eyes of God. None of us are above each other. God has created us equally. And the free gift of salvation is there for all of us. Right, in Acts 10, it says this, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter, lifting him up, said, Stand up, I too am a man. As he walked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. There, Cornelius was saved. He saw it. And he wasn't saved because he became a ritualistic man, but he was saved because of his faith. His faith in the grace of Jesus. And God saw his heart. And that's how salvation works for all of us. Peter's argument here and his answer is this. There's no way that a ritualistic Jew is the only person that has been saved because I've, I've seen different. God has already been working this way. You can't change it. Ever hear that saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? It, it's, it sounds like they're trying to change something that has already been put in place. God has already made a way for salvation, and now they want to come and, and kind of add stuff to it. But they're saying, no, what about, does that disqualify all these people then? Are they not saved? Because I'm sure that they are. I've seen it. These Gentile people are not only saved, but they're going out and, and sharing the gospel with others. He's pointing back to 10 years back, saying God is already doing it this way. And so, yes, yes, God is God is saving others, not because of rituals, but because he loves us and because he sent his son and because we can be saved by grace through faith. Salvation is not like a sport, right? Whenever there's a technology that comes up or an, an, an insight that we learn, we kind of try to add to make the game better. There's nothing that we add to the gospel to make it better. Peter looked at what God had done. And so the answer that he gives is no, we don't have to add to it because God is already doing it this way. Now skip over to uh, verse 13. We'll skip 12 because um, I want to get into what James says. James is now going to answer this question too. Do we need to add anything? And he says this. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from the people for his name, and with this the word of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will build the tent of David that has fallen, and I will build it in ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and that all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. James, again, he's arguing for the same thing here, but he's arguing a different way. Instead of pointing to what God has already done, right, when we look at our experiences and we see how God is moving and how he has worked in our lives, that's what Peter does. But here he's not just doing that. He's not just looking back and saying, hey, God has been doing this. He's been working like this. We've seen it. He's now actually saying, well, apart from that, even more so, that's what he said all along. Instead of pointing to what God had done, he's pointing to the Bible, what is written in God's word. And when he says, even all the Gentiles were called by my name, he's quoting Amos, which is a book in the Old Testament. He, he's, he's pointing to God's word, which is the ultimate authority. And if you want to win a biblical argument, <laughs> here's the trick. Just go to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, that's what it says. I guess, you know, that's what we should be doing. And the reason why what he's saying is biblical is not because what he says doesn't contradict the Bible. It's because it's actually rooted in the Bible. A lot of the times you might think that what you're doing or, or think is biblical because it doesn't contradict what God's word says. But what's actually biblical is what's rooted in Bible. And that's what he is doing. He's pointing back to scripture, saying, hey, from day one, this is what God has been saying. All of a sudden, you, we're not going to change how God saves people. He's been saying people are saved like this from the start. And so while Peter points to what God had done already, now James is looking at what God had said. And so again, the answer is no, we don't add to Scripture because God has always said it would be this way. Um, and if that's the case then, and if there's clarity around that then, that there's nothing to be added, how then can we have a relationship? That's kind of the question that is left there. How can these Jewish people and these Gentiles come together and have a relationship? How can they coexist, cohabitate? How can they come together and have fellowship with one another? Anybody here still have to have dinner all together with their family at the table? Anybody still do that? Uh, wow, that's a lot more than I thought. Well, believe it or not, you know, you know what you do in those special occasions when everybody comes together and they have a meal together sitting around a table? Back in the day, people used to do that a lot more often during dinner time before, you know, TVs were invented and all that stuff. That was actually something people did all the time. Um, but unfortunately, we kind of lost that art. But we kind of know that feeling. That, that's a good feeling. If you've enjoyed doing that, uh, you may not do it so often, but you have to admit that there's something special about that. And now the question is, how can we then have uh, this fellowship with each other? If I see this as defiling, if you would see it as a personal freedom of yours, how can both these things coexist? Right, because they thought it was defiling, not just because they were consuming, for example, foods, but just being around that was defiling. So if they have the liberty to do that because they don't have to abide by rituals, how can those things all exist? Well, here um, is James' recommendation. And I'll go through this really quick. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain these things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from those who have been strangled and from blood. From ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is ready, or he is read every Sabbath in synagogues. Funny enough, this seems like a contradiction because he said, hey, we don't have to be ritualistic in order to be saved. But now he's saying, hey, in order to have fellowship, in order... Um, to kind of coexist and for us to get along, you should do all these things. It's kind of, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for here? Contradictory, I guess, is a safe word, but it just doesn't make sense. He's saying you don't have to do these things, but now he's presenting all these things that they should do. What does that even mean? Uh, as I close here, I want to give the illustration of a wedding. You ever been to a wedding? Raise your hand. Yeah, everybody here has been to a wedding. Have you ever listened to the vows that are given at a wedding? Right? What, what, what is the like thing that sticks out to you the most in a wedding vow? What would you say is like the most interesting part about it? Because I know what it is. Okay. I think, I think we're along the same lines here. What, what is said during the vows is this. This covenant that is established is I will be with you Good and through the good and the bad, right? Through sickness and health, rich and poor. That's what covenant relation uh, relationship looks like. That's what covenant love looks like. It's not just hey, when I feel like it, when things are good, that I'll love you. But I'm committing to you through all circumstances to love you, to care for you, to sacrifice for you. And again, that is what covenant love looks like. It is to live for others and to serve others, to encourage others in their maturation. If, you're, if it's going to cause your brother or sister to stumble, to grow weary, then don't indulge in that. That's what James is saying. He's not saying, hey, do this because you have to. Do it for your brother. Do it because for them it's a struggle. Then, then prioritize them. Care for them in this way. It's not to say that you can't do those things, but we're called to love and to sacrifice for them. And when you get to the age when you have to make certain decisions like that, and even now, make sure that your preference is not yourself, but it's others. Prioritize others over yourself. Just because it may not be wrong for you to do something doesn't mean it is right for you to do it. Right? Both those things can be true. Living in light of the gospel means that we should constantly seek to lay out our freedoms down so our brothers and sisters should flourish. And that's what he's saying here. Simply put, it's consider your brothers and sisters. Um, as you continue to read, I, I won't read this, but you can read verses 22 to 35 uh, in chapter 15. But he kind of concludes this letter here and he encourages them. But essentially what, what's happened here in this chapter is that there's this fear and doubt that's crept in, right? This disagreement and all these things concerning the gospel. But what happens by the end of it is that the gospel is reintroduced. They clarify the gospel and they celebrate the gospel. Right? They, they explain the gospel again for the one millionth time. They clarify it. And what does that mean for you? What that means is that from the moment that you're saved until the end of your life, you need to be remembered of the gospel. You need to 
know the gospel because you will never outgrow the gospel. You need to remember it, and that's why here, time and time again, we will continue to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, to make it known to you guys because it is the foundation for your life. It is the most important thing in your life. In the middle of the, the lows and the highs of your life, the circumstances that you go through, no matter where you're at in your life, the most important and essential thing during that is the gospel. And that's why we talk about it so often, because it is the central message that you must have. It is the foundation for everything else that we talk about. Without talking about the gospel, we can't talk about sins like we did, right? We did a whole series on sins. We can't talk about suffering. We can't talk about pain. We can't talk about community because how do you explain and define that stuff without defining and understanding first the gospel? The gospel is of utmost priority. It is the foundation for your life. Don't forget it. It's easy to forget it. But remember it every single day because everything that you have in life, your whole Christian walk, it is founded and built upon the gospel. And if the gospel is not there, it's going to crumble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. I pray that we would not forget it. Remember again what you have done, as Peter pointed out, how you have saved us because of what your son did and how God's word points to that from the beginning of time. Lord, that we would cling on to the things that you have done in our lives, that we would cling on to what your word says, and we would not forget those as is so easy for us to do. But remember and be reminded of the gospel each and every day as we move forward. During the good times and the bad, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, good morning, citizens. Hope you guys have a great day.